With me in the SCANA studio today is Sally McCadden McKinney. She grew up in Columbia, had an extensive career as a journalist throughout the South, and she has written a book which came out recently called Journey Proud, which deals with young white boys and girls growing up in a small southern town as the civil rights movement begins to take hold. Sally, first of all, welcome back to Columbia now that you're living here. Well, thank you very much. I'm thrilled to be home. And I just wanted to add that you're, that you're here because your official bio on uh, Amazon.com still has having you live south of the Savannah River in Lake Hartwell, Georgia. And <laughs> My mother would be horrified to know that it was still on my my information. Well, I said you grew up in Columbia, but let's let's talk a little bit about your growing up years. Okay. You went to, I think, to, to Creighton Middle School. Well, I started out at Satchel Ford Elementary School with Ann B. Hampton, who was um, the principal there. Then I moved on to Creighton Junior High School, which was okay. what we called it back then. Um, then spent two years at Hammond and then went off to high school, to Salem Academy in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. And then the University of the South. Then the University of the South, Sewanee, Tennessee. And you tried your hand at historic preservation. I tried my hand at historic preservation, but I was not good at dealing with large numbers of volunteers. Um, I seem to remember from those days that you had quite a vehicle you were driving around town. Was it a green Jeep? It was a green truck. It was a Ford F-150. I believe that it was a 1963, and it had a raccoon tail on the antenna. That Uh, I do. do. (laughs) And I love that old truck. And to this day, my husband and I, we actually, we rue the day that we sold it, but I think we needed the $600 very badly, so we did sell it. Okay. And then you went to work for the record, Columbia Record, right? I did. Um, I was hired as a what was then called a general factotum, which meant that I did everything that needed to get done in the newsroom, including writing obituaries and birth, birth announcements. But you very quickly moved on. You had your own column before you left Columbia. I did. I did. Then you, you went south to Georgia. Got married. Uh, went south to Georgia. Raised my children on Lake Hartwell, and then moved back to Columbia about a year and a half, two years ago. Okay, and now you're also doing some freelance writing and journalism again. I am doing again. some freelance work for the state newspaper. Now I want to talk briefly about that before we get into your to your book because do I call them character studies? You pick out interesting people, different occupations, unusual. Well, I love to write about people, and I love to meet people, and I love to talk to people. I get—I I think I get the, the the meeting and talking people part from my mother. Um, she could sit on a park bench and strike up a conversation with anyone and wind up making a connection with them. So I've just always enjoyed writing about people and hearing their stories. And, you know, even the simplest story is usually a pretty good one if you listen hard enough. Well, they're fun to read. Well, thank you very much. Um, any favorite one you've done recently? I spent a very early morning into midday with a couple from Blythewood recently, Edwina and Selvin Harrell, and they're retired, um, and they now run a have a beautiful farm out in Blythewood where they raise all their own vegetables and their own chickens, and they sell all their produce, and it really is a remarkable place that they've got, and they just have so much fun doing it, and the produce is so very good. Is, is it sold there on the place, or do they go to the farmer's They sell it in their sunroom every afternoon, and you just walk up and go in there. But one of the, one of the fun parts of it is that Edwina is, is a, she's a bit of a writer. She sends out an email at the beginning of every week about what's in the garden and what's going to be available throughout the week and what they're picking and this and that. But but the way she writes these stories is you 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 know, you, you become friends with the tomatoes and you know, you feel sad when the when the turnips are are going away and she just it's just very personable information. Mm-hmm. I will just add for our listeners is that Sally has she has won all sorts of major awards, national, she was a part of a team that was a runner-up for the Pulitzer Prize. She's won 
awards both in South Carolina and in Georgia. So you're not just talking to somebody who ended up staying a factotum at the the old Columbia record. <laughs> no, no, you're not. Um, I, you know, I, I had a, a lot of wonderful mentors at the state paper. Uh, Tom McLean was my executive editor. Bobby Hitt, who is now the Secretary of Commerce for the state of South Carolina, he was he was my 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 editor, and he was a darn good one. So, well, and of course, journalism those days was quite a different world from what it is now. Very different world, very different. You mentioned your dear mother Anne, and I I knew her. She also wrote. She did. She wrote a book about uh, Alfred Huddy, the great Charleston artist. And you began thinking about this, what, about 10 years ago? I did. I did. Uh, when I left Columbia and the newspaper, one of the last things that Tom McLean said to me is he said, you know, you've got a, a book in you and you need to, to get on with that. And so I, I took his I took his advice and, and got started. Um, and, you know, that was that was a while back. Was it was it this same book, Journey Proud? Yes, it was. Um, I worked on it on and off for for several, well, maybe more than I don't know if there's a word between several and many, but it would be between several and many years that I did work on it. Yes. And you went to some workshops too along the way. I did. I was invited to the Suwannee Writers Workshop, and I had two wonderful teachers there, Jill McCorkle and Richard Bausch. And uh, Jill was what you call my reader. And she, she said, don't, don't let this go. Don't let this book go. And so I didn't. Well, let's talk about the book. Let's do. All right. It, it's set in a small southern town, 1960s, in a suburb called Whispering Pines. Is that a.k.a. Forest Acres? It certainly is. I can't hide the fact it certainly is. Forest Acres, when I, you know, when I was growing up out there, I grew up on Laurel Springs Road right off Trenum. It was really considered. It was considered sort of the boondocks of Columbia. Um, you couldn't get much further out. I guess you could live in Densville, but it was certainly not considered Heathwood. It's a pretty gripping topic that you you chose. We're not only dealing with young children growing up in an era of civil rights when they have to, they're facing the fact that yes, there is gasp one black child going to the Catholic school, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, the, and the Roman Catholic schools in this state did desegregate before right. the public schools. But you've got a young unwed mother. You've also got parents who are, the mother has a drinking problem, and mm-hmm. daddy's not always there. I mean, it's... Um, well, you know, Walter, I think one thing that um, when I look back over my childhood, and I think when, I, when people our age do look back over their, ch- their childhoods, it seems idyllic, and it's awfully easy to, to portray it as idyllic. But the truth of the matter is that it, it wasn't always nice. Um, there were problems um, within families, and I think as, as children growing up, we didn't, we didn't quite realize that. But as I grew older, I began to look back on, on things, on children in my neighborhood, and and things that happened within their homes, and I thought to myself, you know, gee, that really was, that was, that was not good. Um, that was not a good thing. One of the things that that touched the court is what were some of the things that were going on. That yes, Susie might have been mother or daddy, but Susie's mother late in the afternoon began to be a little bit loopy, and but no, you know, at that time children didn't think about. No, you didn't. You just you just assumed that's the way it was, and of course that was the way it was. But as you get as you got older, you realize, well, wait, now you know that that wow, there was a lot more to that than what I saw as a a ten year old or a twelve year old. What is amazing to me is you let these children in this book, and you've got four young people that your your main characters mm-hmm. deal with these things. You really put yourself into the mind of pre-teenage kids. I know you're creative, but how did you do that? Well, I I think for one way that I did that is I I think the pre-teen years are very difficult years. Certainly they were difficult for me. I was gangly. I was a tomboy. Um, I didn't do well in school. And... So it was very easy for me to, to to sort of 
bring that angst out. Uh, it took me a long time to grow up. What's the expression that my mother used to use? Oh, uh, I'll think of it in a minute. You, you were a late bloomer? I was a late bloomer, exactly. Maybe that should have been the name of the novel. But <laughs> you know, it was a little like saying, oh, bless your heart, you know, being a late bloomer. Well, gee, that's not very... That's not a very good thing, but I certainly was one. And actually, I consider myself still blooming. Uh, but so, so it was very easy for me to, to put those feelings on paper and to, to create those characters. But all your characters aren't young women there. You've got some young boys, too. And, and I think the angst of 7th, 8th, and ninth grade boys is, is, oh. pr- is pretty bad, too, because sometimes, you know, you don't hit that growth spurt and you may be 11 years old, and you're six or eight inches shorter and right. 20 pounds lighter than everybody else, and your voice hasn't started to change well, uh, yet. Yeah, um, and you know, we the, there's one character in the novel. His name is Twig, um, and he wets his pants. He wets his pants at night, and he wets his pants during the day. And there was actually a young boy that I grew up with in my neighborhood that did that, um, and. It never occurred to me why he did it until much later in life. Um, and then I realized that there were things going on probably in his home that, that weren't very pleasant. So, Well, you know, Sally, some people say novels write themselves. Did Journey Proud write itself? Journey Proud did not write itself. I wrote Journey Proud. I, I, I sweat blood and tears over writing Journey Proud. I think that my starting point was I decided when I wanted it to take place. And I decided that 1963 was, you know, it was a very prolific year in terms of national, um, in terms of of news. You know, JFK was assassinated. You had the march in Washington. There were all sorts of things going on. So literally what I did was I went to the Richland County Public Library and I went, I started in January 1963 with the old state newspaper and Columbia Record newspaper clips, and I just went all the way through the year. And at some point during that process, I discovered that, I discovered these stories about this young black boy who was going to be going to a previously all-white Catholic high school in Charleston. And that that was one of my tipping off points because what what interested me about it was the stories. Uh, the reporter followed the boy from the time he left his home till he got in the car, till he got out at the school and walked through the front doors. I mean, there was a lot of detail about it. And I thought, you know, that is just amazing. So that was a tipping off point for me. And, you know, I'd always wanted to write about growing up in some way. Um, and I had the, the characters were pretty well, they, if you want to say the characters wrote themselves, yes, they did. They were, they were pretty obvious to me. It was not hard creating the characters. One of the non-human characters is this giant oak that, they call, that the kids call the old lady, which is sort of their clubhouse, their... Meeting place. Yeah. Did they, did they ever actually build a treehouse in there? I can't remember if they actually did. No, it. they did not. But I think what you're leading up to here is, yes, there was in my neighborhood growing up on Laurel Springs Road a dogwood tree. And there were, there were three roads in our neighborhood that sort of met in kind of a middle of the neighborhood. And, and they, they went around a triangle of land that was no bigger than a, a baseball field without an outfield. And there was this dogwood tree on that little piece of property in the middle of our neighborhood. And because it was nobody's front yard or backyard, we played there all the time. And we climbed in that tree, and we all had our own branches in that tree. And the next question I bet you're going to ask me is, is that tree still there? And it's not. It's gone. Okay. Okay. Well, unfortunately, dogwoods do have a natural lifespan. And... Given that you grew up in Columbia in the 1960s, I'm assuming it was it met a natural demise, or did it get bulldozed? I think it probably met a natural demise because the little piece of property, which we call the triangle, is still there. Yeah, I mean, people, dogwoods, 50, 60 years. That's 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 the lifespan. And this little tree took a lot of abuse because <laughs> we were in it all the time. Well, I was going to say, older varieties of dogwoods 
do have branches that kids could climb on. The new ones are kind of spindly. Well, this was a real sturdy dogwood because, yeah. I mean, you know, there were four or five of us in it all the time. So. Well, it's interesting. You know, you chose 1963, and you said you found this reference to a desegregation, one child going to a Catholic school in Charleston. But 1963 in South Carolina was really a year of decision as to what was going to happen because there weren't just things like the March on Washington. There were marches all over the the state. Mm -hmm. Racial barriers, at least legal barriers, were removed, black and white, colored and white signs. And so that was interesting, but also the fact that the local newspapers really did not cover racial incidents very much. There was something of a conspiracy of silence. So the fact that you found anything is pretty amazing. Well, I found small things. Like, for instance, if you, I, I remember seeing in the classified advertisements, uh, there was a neighborhood where a house was for sale, and it, and it said, and it said, colored neighborhood. You know, you wouldn't, I mean, that, that to me was very striking. There were several uh, police reports that I saw that that mentioned, you know, a colored boy was in a fight. Mm -hmm. um, so it was small things like that yeah. that I found. But the major news stories, they might they were, might have been changed, beginning to change by 1963, but there really was, and there's been a, several articles written in in journals about journalism journals as well as history journals about the conspiracy of silence by the media in the South not to, if we don't talk about what's happening, then everybody will think the world is hunky-dory. Well, it, it, it wasn't hunky-dory. Um, you and I both know that. Uh, and another story that I found that I thought was interesting was there was an, uh, an executive from, I believe he was from New Jersey, a black man was joining IBM or some kind of large company like that in Columbia. And it was it was a small story. It was a story about the fact that a black executive from New Jersey was joining a firm in Columbia. And I thought to myself, that's really that's really amazing. It wasn't until the late nineteen seventies, early nineteen eighties that Columbia's civic clubs desegregated. And it actually involved in one case, an IBM executive actually in the, came to Columbia and had been a member of a Rotary Club. And Well, I wonder if that's that I, I wonder. Well, maybe I delved further. Maybe I went past 1963 in my research. I don't remember doing that, yeah. but I do remember that article very clearly. Um, you know, speaking of clubs, I know that... Um, one of the things that, that I experienced growing up, and I would have to, I'm not sure when my sister was married, she was married in Columbia, but we were going to have her, my parents were gonna have her reception at a country club in town. And Pearl, our housekeeper, was certainly invited to the wedding and we wanted her to come to the reception. And we were told, my parents were told that that would be fine as long as she wore a maid's uniform to the reception. At which point, my parents said, well, we, we can't ask her to do that. Um, so the reception was held at home. Somehow people think that the world, what I would call the, the, the southern world that existed from 1900 to 1963, the, or let's just say 65, the Voting Rights Act, the Civil Rights Act, all of a sudden things changed. Legally, a lot of things changed. But, you know, a lot of things... Emotionally and psychologically, I don't think, you know, it took a, a whole lot longer than that. And I think it's still changing and evolving. People's feelings and attitudes toward one another. Yeah. And if you read the, the book now that's out about growing up black between the world and me, the white world of the 1960s has, has gotten a lot of notice, whether it's the help or... The old new Harper Lee book. Have you read it? Yes, I have. It's amazing. Yes, it is. And yet the world of middle-class African-Americans, working-class African-Americans, hadn't really been told. No. Sometimes the worlds do intersect, 
and you have them. And let's let's talk about that. Okay. This is not the help. No, it's not. And 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 by the way, there was somebody who I thought meant to compliment you and say, the help meets to kill a mockingbird. <laughs> <laughs> but quite frankly, Sally, this is it's better than that. It's not an amalgamation of that. But okay. you do have a very strong African American woman who is a key part of the story. I do. Her name is Naomi Portee, and um, she is, she is, uh, what should I say, Walter? She is my, she is, is the person who I created to figure out what my relationship with the black housekeeper that I grew up with was really all about. Pearl Ramey was the name of our housekeeper, and she, I, I loved her, and I do think that she loved me. But when I look back on the relationship, I have to wonder how much of what she was doing was because she knew she had to do it to survive, and how much of it was was not as sincere, maybe, as I thought it it might be. Um, you know, she was under duress. She had four little girls that she was raising. She had to come to work six and a half days a week. She made very little money, but I'm told that was the going rate. I think she made $35 a week for, for six and a half days of work. And as much as I loved her and as much as I think my family appreciated all the years that she gave us, none of us were at her funeral. I'm not even sure where she's buried. I think maybe she's buried in Lincoln Cemetery, but we simply lost touch with her. She retired and we lost touch. And I, I just, to this day, am, I, I just feel terrible about that. You used the term housekeeper, but I bet you didn't use the term housekeeper back then. Maid. She was, she was your maid. She was our maid. And, and you mentioned the fact she had four little children of her own. So she who did. was taking, while she was... Those children were taking care of themselves. As best I can recall, those children took care of themselves. Um, she perhaps, she lived on Tree Street, which was off of House Street, which was down near the old Providence Hospital. And I remember very clearly, if she didn't take the bus home in the afternoon, for whatever reason, she had to stay late, my mother would take her home in the old Plymouth station wagon, and I would ride in the back, and I would look, you know, when we turned on to House Street, I believe it was, I would begin to see those little houses, and, and just, it was a, a, it was another world. It was another world, Walter. I've never seen anything like it. But always when we turned onto her little street and pulled up in front of her little house, those four girls would be sitting on that front porch waiting for her. And as I remember she was quite a gardener, too. She was. She was. She had beautiful flowers all over her, her little yard. Um, and the other th interesting thing, and I've, I've talked to other people about this, is I remember when my mother would have things in the house or, you know, clothes that we had outgrown or just little knickknacks that would that she had that she didn't need anymore. She would always give them to Pearl. And Pearl had all the little decorative things all lined up in the windows of this little house. And I remember that very, seeing those things very clearly. And it didn't occur to me till much later that, gosh, you know, these were things that my mama didn't want or care about or need. But Pearl took them and obviously loved them very much, you know. I think the questions you were asking, which first came out to a lot of people's surprise in the help, is what were those black women really thinking? Thinking, really thinking. Yes. Um, and, you know, it comes out, you know, that question comes out very clearly in Harper Lee's new novel. When Jean Louise goes to visit Calpurnia, Calpurnia is a very old woman, and Jean Louise is a young woman. And Jean Louise has, realizes at this point that all is not as it seems, that her father is much more involved in things than things that she would wish he wasn't involved in. And she asked Calpurnia, she says, did you love us? 
meaning did you love me and did you love my brother Jim? And I can't recall, maybe you can, I'm not sure that Calpurnia answered her. But the reaction that she gives to to the situation, it's clear that it wasn't the devoted housemaid. No, she, Calpurnia she, had a, a life and a, a life of her own, and she had her own feelings about things, and that became very clear that she wasn't this, you know, this doting black servant um, mm-hmm. that adored her white family. That just wasn't, I don't think, the case. And I wonder if it was the case with with Pearl Ramey. Since you've been back to Columbia, have you tried to find her? where she used to live? I have not gone down on Tree Street. I've thought about doing. I have tried to find her children. Um, I know that two of her, I think two of her girls have died. I've tried to find the, the other two to, to no avail. And I certainly tried to do it before this book came out because part of my dedication is, is to Pearl, and I wanted them to know that. But I, so far, no luck. Do you remember what church she went to? I think that she went to, there's a, an, an AME church, is it perhaps called St. John's? Yes. I think that was in the obituary. It was mm-hmm. a very short obituary. And that was the first I knew of her death is I, I literally just went online and put her name in, you know, Googled her name, and it popped up in an obituary. It's interesting that, that you have, have done that because, as you said initially, you know, she retired. Mm-hmm. Um, My mother moved to Still Hopes. Um, you know, that was that. Yeah. And yet she had been a huge part of your life. Right. And yeah. so it doesn't, it, it doesn't, you know, the two ends don't meet. And, mm-hmm. and what's between those two ends, I'm not real sure. But I think it's something to do with with this whole way that we grew up with this this separation between black and white people. I mean, I, th- I think it, it, it continued on. Sally, we need to pause a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking to Sally McCadden McKinney about her new novel, Journey Proud. I want to talk about some of the other characters, but tell us about the, the title, what the title means. Journey Proud is an old Southern expression. Um, my great-grandmother used to use it. She lived in Orangeburg. She had chickens running around in her front yard, and she would wring their necks and fry them up in the evenings. She would come to Columbia to visit, and she would tell us that she was very tired and that she was going to go to bed early because she had been journey proud the night before, which meant that she was anticipating the trip up the road from Orangeburg to Columbia, so she had not slept very well the night before. And so that expression, when my mother would come visit us when we lived on Lake Hartwell in Georgia, she would say just about the same thing. She'd say, well, I'm going to have to go to bed early because I was journey proud last night. Well, I, I think that's fascinating. And so let's, let's move out. We, we've talked about Naomi. We've talked about Twig to a little bit. But let's, let's develop the characters and the plot without giving away. We're not going to give away your ending. Okay. You've got Four kids, mm-hmm. all white to start with. Right. And let's name them. Well, we've got Annie, who is probably the main character, along with Naomi, the housekeeper. And we've got Buck, who is her best friend. And then we have got siblings, uh, Britty and Twig. And Twig is the little guy who wets his pants and wants to become a Catholic saint when he grows up. Okay. And Brittany is older. Brittany's older than the rest of them. She's the oldest of the group. She has a head full of red hair, and she is, she may be the smartest of of the bunch in terms of, of recognizing what is going on around her and not going along with it. She falls in love with um, a young black boy at her Catholic high school. And when the issue comes up at home, and she does not have a very happy home life. No, she does not. um, She talks about, well, he's not very dark. He's very light-skinned. That's right. That's right. 
they have a they form a relationship, and they actually go to a local soda that's shop. That's right. That's right. Which is Bell's Hamburgers is where they were. And there's an altercation between some black boys, it's the black boy and the white boys, um, and Brittany has they have to leave. They have to leave, and the police then visit Brittany's parents' house. Right. And because this white girl had been sitting in a soda shop with a black boy. A black boy. 1963, that was not supposed to be happening. No, it was not supposed to be happening. He might could have been in the in the soda shop by that time. But not sitting with a white girl. But not sitting but not sitting with a white girl. As things develop and I, this is part, an important part of the 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 plot that I think we can share. Brittany becomes intimate with with the young man and gets pregnant. And gets pregnant. Uh, which she manages to hide from her mother, her family. And then they're all out at the tree in the woods. Well, actually, yes, they are. There, it's, there's a, they, they're out of school. It's early, it's early or March, late March, I believe. School's closed because there's been a, a beautiful, huge snowfall. And they're all out there at this tree on this farm. And she births a baby um, in, a, in the barn of, at this old farm. And what's interesting is that Buck, who is sort of the jock character, I mean, he's, he's seen the sex ed ca- class. Right. And he knows what's happening. Right. And so she delivers the baby. And then there's this rather dramatic moment that he said, there ain't no baby. This didn't happen. Right. Nobody's going to talk about it. It didn't happen. And he tells, they all go back to the tree, and he has a shovel, and he tells Twig to take care of the baby. Well, he tells Twig to get the shovel, and I, and then I think he tell he tells Twig, and Annie says, "Now y'all y'all need to leave and leave me with Britty and this baby." And both Annie and Twi- and especially Twig. They question whether or not they should leave, but they do, in the end, leave. And you are then left with, the reader is left with the question of, well, what is Buck going to do with this baby? That becomes an important point when the tree is threatened by a developer. Yes. Now, Sally, that was that was really an incredible way to to bring this story. And again, I think we're not going to give away the end, but because Annie lets people know that there might be a body buried there, the developer can't. They 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 stop the development. Um, and it's interesting. I, I would love to be able to. I hope. I want to say that the farm in this book, where the old lady is, there actually was a farm out on Bluff Road called Bell Grove. Um, Barbie and Sinclair Manning owned this farm, and there were just slews, a slew of Columbia children who learned how to ride horses out at this farm. And the farm, for me, growing up, was such a special place. Um, and so for those of you who wonder where the farm came from, it, it, it didn't come from my imagination. It was literally a farm out on Bluff Road, and I believe it's still there. I think it's a hunting club now. It's a hunting club. But in this case, somebody was going to put a suburban development. That's exactly right. And the tree had to go. The tree had to go. And um, Annie, as a grown-up woman, learned learned of the plans by reading the newspaper. And she just, at that point, she reached her, she reached the end of her rope in terms of what had taken place there before and her feelings about it. So she decides, I can't let this happen. And she she gathers her friends together and says, "We this, this can't happen. Um, and she really, she literally kind of becomes one of those tree huggers in, in, in California. She goes out there and says, this is not going to happen. She actually get, climbs she, the tree. She gets in the tree and she says, I'm not coming out. Um, and her friends come to her aid because, and the reason I, I, I brought her friends back is because I've always wondered what it would be like to 
to be back in that old dogwood tree with my buddies growing up. You know, I would just I would just love that kind of reunion. Well, you know, the real story should be some of your columns is what happened to your to your buddies because over the years they've been, you know, the class of 55, 50 years later and you know, yeah. that kind of thing. And and I think it interesting is that the nerd in the book, Twig, turns out to be the most successful one of all. He does. He does. And he has the money to help make everything happen. And he has the money and the clout to make everything happen, and that's what he does. Yeah. And what happened to Buck? I'm trying to remember. Buck comes back. But... Buck is Buck comes back to help Annie with the tree, um, and he... I don't want to give away too much, but he does confess his 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 love for for Annie. Um, he's always loved her, and he is a vet. He's a veterinarian up in North Carolina. And readers, we hope that maybe they they wind up getting together in the long run. And Annie has become. She's an artist. Mm-hmm. Um, she's divorced, and she. I would say is not a terribly happy young she's not a terribly happy woman she's but she's she's working through things and I think at the end of this story she she finds some some real happiness okay we'll we'll stop there with the plot and i i want I want to go back to Naomi to the reason that she and Annie become close is because Annie's brother dies and her mother loses it. it. And has go, a nervous breakdown and goes to the Bull Street. Well, she didn't go to Bull Street. She, um, I actually, you know, I asked my mother when my mother was still alive while I was writing this book. I said, you know, Mom, I said for women of 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 your station, if if a woman did have a nervous breakdown and it couldn't be handled in a hospital in Columbia, where was there anywhere that people went for? Uh, like a sanitarium. That, mm-hmm. I think that was the word they used. And she said, oh, yes, there was a very nice place in Maryland. And I remember thinking, a very nice place. <laughs> what an explanation, <laughs> a description. A very nice place in, in Maryland. So Annie's mother went to this very nice place in Maryland, um, and Annie's father brought hired Naomi to take care of Annie while he was working and dealing with yeah. his wife. And he advertises, and it, it's interesting, the African-American grapevine puts out the word that this job is available. Right. And the African-American grapevine also tells Naomi everything Naomi needs to know before she goes to work for this white family. Um, and, 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 you know, that harks back to, I remember Pearl walking down the street um, down Laurel Springs after she got off the bus at the top of Trenum Road, and she would be walking down the street with a, a group of black housekeepers um, with other black maids. And, you know, you could see each one peel off at each house as, as they they kept walking down the street. And and I, I just was sure that, I'm, that they were, you know, talking about everything that there was to talk about in terms of, of their... Um, their white employers as they were walking down that road. If Pearl was still around, I think she might tell you that, yes, they always did talk about their white. You know, and that's that's something that I think our parents' generation had a, would have a hard time accepting the fact that their most private affairs were... Got talked about. Got talked about. Who had separate bedrooms, who... who, who who's, who's fighting and yeah. who's drinking too much and who's not looking after the children the way they need to, et cetera, et cetera. I'm sure it went on. What's your next project? My next project is I'm working on a novel, which right now I'm calling Thicket. Um, It's about a young woman who was raised by her grandfather in a small southern town, much smaller than the town in Journey Proud. And she has to come back home to this town to bury him and she quickly becomes enmeshed in his numerous businesses including ownership of the weekly newspaper and 
she tries to shut the little weekly newspaper down, but in the process discovers that there is a very scintillating story going on with the football team at the high school. And so she becomes involved in uncovering that story. And in the process, I think she'll she's going to discover that she may have to uncover things about her grandfather that she would rather not uncover. Okay. Well, any advice to would-be authors out there or any last words you'd like to give to our listeners before we sign off? Oh, gosh. You know, um, Walter, I had the pri- the great privilege when I was working at the state paper as a columnist of working with Kathleen Parker, um, who is a national columnist. And Bobby Hitt brought her in for about two months to work work once a week with me in writing columns. And so she would come in on a Thursday afternoon and we would go over my column and we would talk about it. And um, one day she read one of my columns and she said, she just looked at me and she said, do you really feel that way? And I said, well, no, not really. Well, then why'd you write it that way? And I said, because she said, you wrote it that way because that's what you think everybody wants to hear. But what you really need to do is what is you need to write exactly how you feel about things. That's my advice, I guess. Just, you know, stay true to yourself. I guess it's cheesy, but it's it's the truth. Just be true to the way you feel about things. All right. Well, Sally McAdam McKinney, author of Journey Proud, thanks for being with us today on The Journal. Well, thank you so much. This is Walter Edgar's Journal, and next we'll hear a Christmas story told by author, pastor, and storyteller Kirk Neely on a show we broadcast in 2011. The story is from his book, Santa Almost Got Caught, stories for Thanksgiving, Christmas, and the New Year. Kirk, let's, let's move on to your, your Santa Almost Got Caught, stories for Thanksgiving, Christmas, and the New Year. And let's start off with the story that's the basis for the title about Santa almost got caught. And this, this involves your late son, Eric. It does. Mm-hmm. And, and Eric uh, was eight years old, and I don't remember exactly the year that he was eight. He was born in 73, so that would make him, that would make this, what, about uh, 81 or something 81 like that. 81 or 80. It, it, was, it was 81 because it was right before our daughter Betsy was born. Mm-hmm. So it was Christmas of 1981. Christmas Eve morning, 6 o'clock, I woke up and Eric was standing by the bed. Now, I knew that his classmates had been talking to him about who the real Santa Claus was. And in our family, we had a tradition. My grandfather did this. My dad did this. They, they always told their children that they were Santa Claus. My dad would say, you know, I'm Santa Claus. Ho, ho, ho. And, of course, we didn't believe him. And so I did the same thing with my children. I'm Santa Claus. Ho, ho, ho. And they would say, Dad, you can't deliver presents to all the children in all the world. No. Dad, you don't even have a red suit. You're colorblind. You don't even know what a red suit looks like. I said, that's right. They never did say I wasn't uh, heavy enough. (laughs) You don't have reindeer. They had all kind of reasons why I couldn't be Santa Claus. So the, the idea is you don't lie to your children. You tell them the truth, but you do it in a way that allows them to believe when they're ready mm-hmm. to believe. And I knew Eric was just about ready. His classmates had been talking to him. He was standing by the bed 6 o'clock in the morning. I woke up. I was groggy. He said, Dad, I'm going everywhere you go today. And that Christmas Eve, he stuck with me like glue all day long. He went everywhere I went. We had the custom in those days of going to my parents' home. We'd go to my sister's home for a sort of a brunch, then go to my parents' home and spend most of the rest of the day, and then go back to our home and get ready for Santa Claus to visit. He stayed with me. He, I, when I say he went everywhere, I do mean everywhere, everywhere. He didn't let me out of his sight. I even had to go run some errands and make a hospital visit, and he went with me. So that night, we got back home. Claire was pregnant with our daughter, Betsy. We had three other sons, and uh, Eric said, I'm staying with, up with Dad. 
Everybody got their stockings out. We had our little devotion, as we do on Christmas Eve, maybe sang a Christmas carol. And Claire took the other children upstairs. Eric and I were by the fire. We put on some Christmas music. I was so tired. He said, Dad, let's play Monopoly. I hate Monopoly. <laughs> he loves Monopoly. We played Monopoly. We played until he had captured all my properties and the game was over. You didn't throw it, did you, Dad? I thought about it. <laughs> I'm too competitive, I think, to throw it. But it was fine with me that he won. About 2 o'clock in the morning, I said, Eric, I am so tired. I'm going to put my head down on the pillow and go to sleep. He said, you go right ahead. I'm going to stay awake. I said, okay. So there by the fire, I got a pillow off the couch and put my head down. I went sound asleep. 6 o'clock Christmas morning. He's punching me, waking me. Dad, get up. Get up, Dad. I said, hey, Eric. He said, Dad, it's time. I said, time for what? He said, you've got to fix the stockings. You've got to put the toys out. I said, Eric, what are you talking about? He said, Dad, I know it's you. People at school told me it was you. He said, you've got to get up. We've got to get busy. So I roused myself up. I said, come on, let's go to the kitchen and get us a glass of orange juice. We got a glass of orange juice. I said, let's just look around a little bit. We went to the front door, and there was a little bit of candy on the floor by the front door. And he opened the front door, and there was a little trail of candy going out into the yard. I said, looks like somebody was in a hurry. He said, Dad, don't tease me. I said, let's keep looking. We looked around, and there was another trail of candy going down to the basement. I said, we better follow this. He went first. We turned on the basement light, and he got down to the basement, turned the, turned the lights on down there, and there were all the toys. The stockings were stuffed. All the, toy, all the toys were laid out in the basement. He turned around and looked at me and said, how did you do that? <laughs> how did you do that, he said. I said, look, there's a note here, and it was a note from Santa Claus. And the note was to Eric, and it said, dear Eric, I know that you and your dad have had a long night. And he said, I tried not to wake you up. But he said, you know, one of the great mysteries of Christmas is Santa Claus. Christmas is all about mystery. And he said, I know you like to solve puzzles. And he said, I've left a nice puzzle for you. But there are gifts here for, for your brothers and your, your sister who's coming and even for your mom. But he said, Eric, I want you to know that the greatest mystery of Christmas is a mystery of love. It's a mystery of God's love. Eric, I want you and your family to remember that this is Jesus' birthday. I love you very much, Santa. That note meant so much to him, and of course it meant, meant a lot to us. And you know, this is really what Christmas is about. It is a mystery. And a part of the mystery is why a father would want so much to see this mystery continue for his child, that he would stay up all night on the night of the 23rd, laying Christmas out in the basement, <laughs> so that when he crawled into bed early, early in the morning, he'd only been in the bed about 15 minutes when that eight-year-old showed up to wake him up. <laughs> so that's the title story of the book. This is Walter Edgar. I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. It was great fun taping a program with Sally McKinney. I've known Sally for a number of years and followed her career from being volunteer coordinator at Historic Columbia to a well-established journalist in the South, and now talking about her first novel, Journey Proud. It's quite a South Carolina story. And also the encore of Kirk Neely's story about the holidays, Santa Almost Got Caught. What a wonderful storyteller. In fact, both Sally and Kirk are great storytellers. Stories remind one of family and home and the holidays. From all of us here at Walter Edgar's Journal, Alfred Turner, those behind the scenes, and from me, may you and your family have a happy and blessed holiday.
Next time on Walter Edgar's Journal, my guest will be Professor Robert Brinkmeyer of the University of South Carolina, and we'll talk about Harper Lee's novel, Go Set a Watchman. What we get in this book is a much more rich depiction of people living in times of cultural change and the stresses and strains that are undergoing and how individuals are responding to them. Join me for Walter Edgar's Journal, a production of ETV Radio, South Carolina Public Radio, Friday at noon. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETB Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's Journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.